if I had stayed home and never just did this, I would just never know all these facts or taken as much of an interest because learning from the people that live there is so much richer to me than, than reading about it. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. My guest today is a New Yorker. I don't know, have I had one? I'm not sure, but I'm always happy to speak to somebody from New York. She is a full-time travel coach. I don't think it was planned to happen like that. She decided to take a break in 2017 for a little while, three to six months. And six years later, she is still on the road. She is now a full-time nomad. And she did a TED talk. That's one thing that I want to talk to her about. And I also want to talk to her about how she was marooned in New Zealand during the pandemic. And then I saw something else that we have in common. We both like Sarajevo very much. Oh, and yeah. um, anything else we'll find out now. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Heather Markle. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So, Heather, I always start this podcast with this famous question. When were you on a plane for the first time? <laughs> oh, uh, I think I was two. Um, and it was my parents took me to the Canary Islands, where I promptly ordered spaghetti and fell asleep face first in the pasta. <laughs> that sounds very exciting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so obviously, you don't really remember that when you if you were two. No. Did you go from New York to the Canary Islands? Or did you live somewhere else? From New York. That's amazing. That's an interesting yeah. place to go from New York. Yes. Um, I don't know. My my parents enjoyed traveling, so I was lucky. But we did all of the travel I remember doing with them was Europe and the Caribbean. When you had this idea to take a break, you had traveled before. You had you were enjoying traveling. It was not something new, but like some people do who work for a long time. And then they say, I haven't had a chance to do anything. So now I'm going to do it. You were already a travel addict. Yeah. I, I think I had been to about 30 countries by the time I quit. And uh, really my love of travel started. Um, I, I was forced I went kicking and screaming to live with um, a host family in Normandy, France when I was 16. And, uh, I, I really, I had been at summer camp, um, in America up till then. So this experience was like terrifying to me and it ended up just transforming me. Um, and after living with a family, uh, I fell in love with their cows and that's like a whole other story about how I love cows. And then I learned to speak French fluently. Uh, I just became obsessed with not just travel, but actually immersing in places and getting to know cultures, which is very difficult to do on a one or two week vacation. <laughs> yes, but um, how long did you spend in Normandy when you were 16? Uh, a month. I hear that. This is not the first time that I hear that. Uh, I was, it a, what is, was it a common thing from for, for people from the US to go to France in the summer for uh, like to stay with a host family? I've heard it before. Uh, I think so. When I was a kid, I, I think it was maybe somewhat common. Uh, I was lucky that my... My stepmother had done the program that I did. And at that time, it was uh, very much focused on the immersion, meaning I went over with a group of Americans, a small group. We each got placed in a separate family. So I came from New York as then an only child with no pets. And I got placed with a farm family in the middle of nowhere with the cows and eight, I suddenly have eight siblings. And, you know, it was this total juxtaposition. And I was 
um, it was kind of shocking, but really good for me. Um, and then I got like the family, the, some of the kids did speak English, but they refused to because my host mom wanted me to learn French. And so I very much experienced the day-to-day life with them all the time. And there were a couple of excursions, but now from what I gather, the programs that do this are very focused on activities. Um, in fact, I now have a a half brother, I just call him my brother, but he did the same program as me years later. And it seemed like they were much more focused on activities and all the American kids getting together, which I think detracts from the experience of getting to know the culture and through a family and local people and talking to them and getting to know them. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's fantastic that your host mother told them not to speak English to you because she could have taken advantage and she could have said, you know, this is a good opportunity for my kids to practice their English. Because I know that in Switzerland, we have this system of, you know, going as an au pair from the German speaking part to the French speaking part. And I, (laughs) I knew I had friends who used to go there and they were looking after kids. And at the end, when they left, the kids spoke perfect Swiss German and the the au pair girl who had gone to learn French didn't hardly knew any because, um, you know, sometimes, so that is a good thing. Thing. And um, and did that kind of connect you to France? Do you have a, a a liking for the French language or for France? Yes, I do. I mean, and after living with that host family, I lived with the second one. Uh, I then studied uh, for, I guess it was high school. Uh, no, it was college. I studied for a year um, and I did six months in Paris. Then I worked in Paris for a year uh, after college. And I've been going back to visit my host families for well, well, I mean, ever since then, so well over 30 years, 40 years, I don't know. Um, I've been going, uh, back to France. So I'm there. I was just there last summer twice. Are you still in touch with the, with those people? Yes, I am. How amazing. So you kind of, you saw them grow up and get married yes. and, and whatever people. Do. Yeah. And, and, you know, my host dad passed away several years ago. So I went for that. Um, and I just went and stayed with, um, a couple of my host sisters and then my host mom last summer. So yeah, still saying amazing. That's, that's really, that really is amazing. So let's have a look at that break that you decided to take in 2000. I mean, you, you, you were a normal working girl before who took holidays, who you, you would travel when you had time off work. That's exactly. Yeah. I did that for over 25 years. And, you know, even though I had uh, at the time, I actually had a good vacation policy because I had worked with the same company for a long time, but I never felt right taking more than a week or two at a time. So it was like, oh, like I'm so important that the whole company is going to fall down if I'm not there. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, I I basically felt for a while that this was not my calling. That you know, I'm I I don't know. I know I'm not supposed to be here, but I don't know where I'm supposed to be. And the one thing I know I love in life is traveling and meeting people. So let's do that. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I went with the intention of uh, traveling for three to six months. And yeah, and then it, it, when I came back from the first journey, which was six weeks because I had to come back for jury duty, I uh, went off to Europe and then realized this is not a career break. This is something more. <laughs> so you had kind of decided you're going to do that. You quit your job. You weren't going to go back to that job anyway. 
Correct. And that took a lot of guts. Um, it took me a year to work up. Like once I made the decision for one, like every January, um, every December, I'm trying to think, no, no, every January I used to say, this is the year I'm going to quit. And then I'd get to December and I didn't do it. Yeah. And uh, finally in January, 2017, I actually had a, a pain in my chest and I was very depressed. And I flash back to um, years earlier when I was um, married and I was ping-ponging between my head and my heart. Should I stay? Should I go? And I herniated two discs in my neck. And so I realized like, oh, if I don't do something about this, this pain in my chest is going to become something worse. So that's when I was all in. But then I set myself like, I was like, all right, I got to test my resolve. And through that year, I had a few things come up and I took them as that challenge, um, stepped up to them. And then, yeah, I quit. Um, in 2017, um, I did, to be fair, I did try to get a sabbatical. Um, the, the irony was, uh, three years before I, um, had asked my then boss if I could get a personal sabbatical and he said, no, and don't ever ask again because people will think you don't want your job. So three years later, I ended up back with that same boss. And I said, remember that conversation I'm going. And this time he actually tried to get me the sabbatical and he didn't want to do a technicality that he wasn't sure he could replace my position. So he didn't want to do it. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to (laughs) go. But you see, this is exactly, this is the, you were in a very, very famous comfort zone and the comfort zone is not a nice place very often. It is. It's it's very comfortable and very boring. It's the place where our dreams go to die. Yeah. So you decided to, because you see, this is the thing. It's comfortable. You have a salary, you have a job, you have, you belong somewhere, but you're not happy. And you start having pain, as you say, pain in your neck, pain in your chest. And then, and most people, many, many people still stay. Yes. Cause it is easier. It would have been yes. easier. It would have been easier for me to stay married and it would have been easier for me to stay in the job. Absolutely easier. Aren't you glad you did it? I'm very glad I did not do either. Yeah. So, um, so you quit your job, off you go. And you, you mentioned something before, it is jury duty for somebody like me, who is not American. Um, we see that in movies. Is that something like when they tell you that you have to come, you have to come no matter where you are? Uh, How does so that work? At the, with, with jury at that, duty? Yeah. At that point. Yes. I mean, I, I, um, you know, look when I went, that time, um, I had planned to come back. I mean, I was very much like, I'm I'm a New Yorker. I'll be back. Uh, Might as well just get this done so that, because you can defer it, um, but you you can't, it becomes difficult to get out of it. But now we'll see because I, they ask you to serve, supposed to be now every six years. I got, you get like a questionnaire first. um, And I got a questionnaire and I sent them my proof of service from last time. I said, I don't even live here anymore. And here's here's what I can show you as proof that I don't live here anymore. So I don't know what they'll do with that. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an interesting question for nomads. Like, I don't know how, because I'm still a citizen, but I don't live anywhere. So I don't know how they deal with that. Yeah. Well, you'll find out eventually. <laughs> I will. But they come looking for you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So when did you... You said three to six months. When did you understand that this is going to be longer? When did you understand that this is what you, because you turned this into a profession? I was traveling through Western Europe and I think I was in Scotland um, needing to think about the fact that my apartment lease renewed in September of that year. And I was like, um, 
first off, I'm really, really enjoying what I'm doing. Why would I go back to this real life where I was unhappy? And then I just looked at the rent that I was paying on that New York apartment. And now I could equate it to time to travel. And I realized if I gave up that apartment, that's a huge chunk of change that I can put towards making my travel last a lot longer. So it just became a no brainer. And I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this, but all right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to give up the apartment, close it up and go for it. And then I went all in. So you were officially homeless. Officially. Well, see, I, it's funny. I don't think of myself as homeless. I think of myself as at home wherever I am. No, I'm only joking. I was just, you know, but when you don't have a place anymore. I know, yeah. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that even when you are not doing, because I travel a lot and I used to work, I was a tour guide when I was young. And then later on, I used to work for the police. I was a conference interpreter and I used to go to all the, all sorts of places. And I used to feel like even if I was just at, at the hotel for three, four days, that was my home for those three, four days. I think you yeah. can make any place your home if you want to. So I agree. then um, at some point, though, you understood that this is going to be it. This is going to be your. So you you probably must have been thinking, I need to make some money here. I was so grateful because I had been. um I was working in corporate and I had a, I was also a business coach and I was, I started out earning my corporate salary with my business coaching. So I thought I was going to quit and do that full time, but, but I basically burnt out because I was, you know, working, just working all the time. And so brought to the surface, all of these, my thoughts, my voice, how much conditioning that I had going on in my mind that I wasn't even aware of. Um, so I got to start releasing that and working on that. And then, uh, you know, and then you become, I became aware of, and I think as a traveler, I'm, I'm much more aware of like the universe opportunities, um, manifesting all that stuff. So, uh, this, this, uh, the writing opportunity came my way. So I jumped on it. And so I've been a travel writer for since, uh, 2019, um, and I also now am a full-time travel coach. So I'm actually helping. It's, it's just interesting how, when I quit, people thought I was absolutely crazy to walk away from, you know, this reliable income and the benefits and, and now it's basically a trend. And, um, and what's really fascinating to me is that, you know, I was older, I wasn't like a millennial when I quit and, the fat one of the fastest growing groups in doing this now are the over 50 group. So um so I very much uh am, am happy that I can be here for people that are also a little bit older so that they can see themselves doing this because you know I I hope I'm modeling the idea that you know you don't have to go bankrupt, you don't have to, you know, worry about your future all the time. You can actually go do this anytime at any age that you want to do it. That is really also very helpful to know that there is somebody like you who who kind of takes people by their hand for a bit until yes. they can walk on their own, because this is more or less what you do, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. So I'm, I mean, the at the core, the way I see the transition to this lifestyle, it's um, I call it um, mindset, money, and mastery. So mindset is the the biggest thing, right? All the anxieties, all the what ifs, all, you know, all those doubts, um, and making our way through those and flipping them so that, um, you, you have more courage and then going into the money piece and just how do you create the financial path to live this lifestyle? 
And then the mastery is all the, you know, the logistics, the planning, like the visas, taxes, insurance, all that stuff that you have to worry about um, before you go. Yeah. And uh, you, do, do, how do you do it? Do you have like a, a course that people, is it an online course? We're going to put it in the, in the show notes, how people can find you. Yeah. So um, I offer both. Um, I have a couple of courses, an ebook. I'm actually, I've just been plotting out a possible um, third e-course. <laughs> so those are self-study. Um, and then I do one-to-one coaching and the coaching, I basically, I have that full-on program, but I like to work with people where they are. Some people already know like, oh, I don't, I don't have any doubts and mindset issues. I'm ready, but I need the money piece. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I would just do that with them. And still others might just need like a, like a, an, an hour consultation. So yeah. I just work with my clients, what, what they need. I like that too. I do coaching. I'm an NLP practitioner and I love to work with just one person and I love to watch them let go of that stuff that sometimes they have been carrying around with them for yep. years and you can literally watch it you, you know how they straighten up and they 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 grow by a few centimeters and they are just more more um you know feel better about themselves it's beautiful yes I agree yeah. Although I, yeah. I do also enjoy group coaching and I, I've been thinking about um, adding on like a group program just because I think that would be fun too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, and it's also, I think sometimes when it's a group, it's also see the group dynamic and see how they get on with each other and what they can do for each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So now the pandemic, where were you in January, February, um, 2020? So February 19th, I grabbed my flight, um, one of the the first of three flights, um, over to Christchurch, New Zealand. So I touched down there February 21st. I could only secure the first two nights of accommodation because the place was so bloody expensive. Um, I just, I didn't know what I was going to do. Went out to dinner, met a lovely woman. She took me in for a week. And then I kind of looked around. I'm like, all right. This is just so expensive. I'm going to take three weeks. I'm going to run around the South Island and the North Island. And then I'm going to go visit my friend in Australia. And when I got up to Rotorua um, in the North Island, the pandemic was declared. Uh, I had talked to a lot of people by then. So I found out that the North of the North Island was beautiful. It sounded like it might be a little less touristy. So I figured, all right, this will blow over in a week. I'll go. I I got an Airbnb for a week and I figured, yeah, once it blows over, I'll figure out next steps. And all of a sudden I'm the, the country is being locked down. Um, and I think it was, uh, February 20, was it? No, I guess it was March 26th. Um, they were locking down. It was like March 24th or something. And I'm like, oh gosh, um, I don't know what to do. And I went for a walk and I basically, I had, I had found out that the, the deal was I went to the travel agent. They said, uh, you either leave New Zealand now or you stay. And if you stay, we have no idea how long that will be for. And I had paid, I used miles to get there. I paid 26 us dollars to fly there. And it was $5,000 to go back. And I'm like, oh gosh, that was problem one. Problem two, I would have returned to New York, which was then the the center of the, you know, the pandemic in the US. So I made the decision to stay, believing it would be three or four months. Um, Lucked into on that walk, I went to this beautiful sculpture garden, 
And, you know, as the universe does, like miraculously, this the man that owns it appears. And the first thing he says to me is, are you by chance looking for accommodation? And I was like, yes. And that's how I ended up um, in this cottage in paradise with a, a set of Americans and a set of a, a British couple that both were also marooned. And the three to four months turned into two years because uh, it became apparent that I didn't want to jump on an airplane without being vaccinated. And since New Zealand, after locking us down, we had no COVID for a year. We got the vaccinations last. So two years, wow. six visa renewals. <laughs> and during that time, though, you worked online. I did. I called immigration and I asked them um, if it was OK for me to work. And they said, as long as I was paid in into my U.S. bank account, paid taxes there and did not solicit new business in New Zealand, it was fine. And it worked out like that woman that took me in um, that first night. Um, she uh, she ended up hiring me to do marketing work for her for a while. So that helped. And then I had um, some clients, uh, coaching clients, doing the like life and business coaching. And also the programs that I offer, um, one of them was actually completely created while I was there. So you have like lovely backgrounds and stuff in the, in the video of the e-course. So it's your New Zealand baby. Yes, it really is. At the beginning, the lockdowns were very strict, I remember, in New Zealand. But did yes. you did you become free at some point? Did you get to travel around within yeah, New Zealand? We, uh, after the 75 days, um, wide open. So I went all over the North and South Islands like twice. <laughs> okay. So at least you got to see the whole place the way you wanted to see it. Fascinating. Yeah. And then when you left, everything was open again. Things were kind of... no. Um, when I left, um, so I got vaccinated. And of course, the whole reason I had gone to New Zealand was I wanted to see my friend in Australia. And I had booked my ticket. I was going to see her that like June or July. And then they got three cases of the Delta variant. They didn't handle it well. And they shut the country down again. So um, miraculously, it reopened. I, my last visa for New Zealand expired November 14th. Um, and I got a ticket out November 5th. And the only reason I did it, so so I got to Auckland where we got caught in a Delta variant and they shut it down. Oh my God. Um, I mean, it was crazy. And then um, there was, I, I caught on the, the rumor. The, I don't know. It was really weird in New Zealand how with the airline and the gut, like the, there's a weird uh, system where you just kind of have to listen. For, and, and it's like, I, I heard it. It was like the rumor was that, Air New Zealand was going to open flights to um, to Sydney, so I booked the flight and um, and thank God I did because I flew out November fifth, and they shut shut it down again like a week after because I think New Zealand didn't feel comfortable. I don't know. So so basically, I got out, visited my friend in um, Australia. At which point mask wearing everywhere, and um, I had wanted to go to the Whit Sundays and Perth. Um, Perth was closed. Um, the Whit Sundays required two weeks quarantine once you got there, which I didn't have time for at that point. So I couldn't go there. So I flew up to Singapore. Singapore at the time, I had to do a test before I left, um, get a negative test, test at the airport after I landed, so, like stay quarantined in my hotel room till I got the results of that airport test. And then I had to test every like three days um, while I was there. So it was not at all like, and the only reason I got into Singapore was that Australia was one of maybe 10 countries that they were allowing in at that point. 
And it was a very complicated thing because I'd been vaccinated in New Zealand and New Zealand was not on their list. So I had to get my records transferred to Australia. I was crazy. So, uh, yeah, so it was uh, not open, but um, but open. I found openings. Amazing. Amazing. So, yeah, I think there are so, so many stories about pe- where people were, how they got stuck, where they, you know, how they got out. Some people decide, some people would have done what you didn't do, like leave for $5,000 and then other yeah. people have. But I think you have a great story to tell. And I don't know, you had a good time for those two years. Yes, it was, it was amazing. And I made community and friends. And um, yeah, I'm really glad. And I, I, the number of people I met online on like Facebook who were like, oh, I could have stayed in New Zealand, but I came home and they got sick and they wished that they had stayed. So. Yeah. Yeah. I also saw that you were traveling. I mean, you've been traveling a lot. I, I've noticed a lot of places, but um, you've been traveling through the Balkan countries. You were in. Yes. And, and you like Sarajevo, like I do. What is it that we like about Sarajevo? Um, I have to say, I, I mean, Bosnia and Herzegovina to me was, was, I wasn't really planning to go. I kind of, um, I, I was in Europe because I was going to meet my mom and, um, I went to Croatia to write an article about it. In 1991, I was working in Paris. So I knew about the Gulf War, but the, the Yugoslavian war never really hit my radar. So here I am in this country. I'm like, well, wait, I was alive back then. I'm meeting people younger than me that have been through a war and, this is fascinating to me and I just wanted to learn more. So I basically traveled through the former Yugoslavia and, you know, Mostar and Mostar is the other city I went to, which I also loved. And I think between Mostar and Sarajevo, you know, you've got the, the bombed out buildings are still there. So it's like you have a visual representation of something that you'd only hear in written form basically, or see on the news, maybe the people are amazing just for what they go through. I mean, it's tragic with like three different presidents and three different, they're still teaching three different versions of history in school and the food, the, I think Sarajevo also very much the Ottoman empire influence. So I really wanted to go to Turkey and this is like the first time I'm seeing such a, you know, the, the markets and the, that influence the um, the Bosnian coffee. I loved it. I had learned about Francis Ferdinand being assassinated in school, but it's like very one dimensional because I would read it and I got to stand on the spot where the he bridge. was assassinated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's still a, there's still the bullet to holes, you know, and they, and so now the story takes on three dimensions. Cause I'm, I understand that he was in the horse and carriage, that it was a random thing. He went down the street where the guy, you know, who assassinates him wasn't supposed to assassinate him, but, you know, so, you know, and then there's the, um, there's this viewpoint and there's a, there's so much to Sarajevo. And I was there, I not intentionally, but I was there for the Sarajevo film festival. So um, it's just a fascinating city um, (laughs) on many levels. And, and the the whole area, the whole, uh, ex-Yugoslavian countries are all very beautiful and the it's the hospitality of the people they are just friendly and easygoing and you can have a laugh with them and uh, it's it's lovely to travel there is a huge misconception about many of those places including Albania you know it's it's a, yeah. it, those are beautiful countries and beautiful people I didn't understand what was happening I went to Montenegro like what you know that was another story related to the Yugoslavian war and then and then Albania, which is communism and, you know, and what they endured. And it's just, it's just fascinating. And like that, again, if I had stayed home and never just did this, I would just never know all these facts or taken as much of an interest because 
learning from the people that live there is so much richer to me than than reading about it. Yeah, and it totally opens your mind and it makes you understand so many things because media and propaganda sort of makes us be afraid of each other instead of embracing each other. Exactly. And that's one of the many reasons I think we should all experience travel like this because we really get to learn that um, the world is not 100% the way the media says it is. No, it's not. And and uh, it also shows us how pe- what people are like and that people are living lives everywhere. You know, that uh, there is so we have every, we have so much in common, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, did you make it down to Greece? I didn't this time. Um, so my plan was to go all the way down to Turkey. But I um, because, well, one, I just enjoy like, lo- you know, land travel. Um, and two, uh, with the last summer, the airlines were having so many problems. I didn't feel like flying. So um, when I got down to Albania, I wanted to go to like Corfu, a little bit of Greece and Turkey. And I ran out of time because um, I had to get to Scotland to see my mom. And get, so it just didn't work out. Okay. Uh, and you obviously have not been to Cyprus because many people think that no, Cyprus is part of I Greece, want to. No, <laughs> Cyprus is, yeah, it's on the list. Okay, so I'll be here waiting. Great, can't wait. And um, I'm looking at the time and we're already quite far ahead. What's next? What's coming? What's on your radar? What are what are you going to do? So um, this year, uh, loosely, um, right now I'm trying to figure out, I know it's very different, Bali or probably like Mexico, Belize. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I want to go back to Africa, visit a friend in um, Reunion Island. And uh, then my brother is turning 30. So wherever it is that he picks going there. And then my mom and I will probably go somewhere maybe in Europe again. Um, so <laughs> all over the Lots map. Of as we Lots of plans. And the last thing that I want to touch on is your TED Talk. You were talking about... What were you talking about? I forgot to write it down. Yeah. So, well, it's called the benefits of living nomadically, but secretly it's the benefits of living nomadically after 40. I see. So why after 40? I mean, what's the difference? Well, so I think, um, but again, I wanted to inspire people that are, you know, the middle around the middle of their life, because we see young people are like, oh yeah, I'll just go like no big deal. Right. But when you get a little older, it's, what about retirement? What about my, you know, my future? And, um, and so one of the things I say in the um, TEDx talk is I also find that it's normal when we reach middle age, we start wondering what our purpose is and wanting more meaning and fulfillment. It's a normal thing. And our society pushes us towards two paths, get therapy or take medication not, you know, I didn't try the medication route, but the therapy didn't help me. And so I'm advocating that full-time travel could be a tool to help us in midlife to find that fulfillment and purpose that we want. So that's one of the the reasons that I talk about um, travel being essential, I think. Um, I think it's for everyone, but that was one of the big things for someone after 40. Oh, I would totally agree with you that travel is the absolute best therapy. Yeah. It is. And it just, you know, you're, you're stretched outside your comfort zone. You're dealing with, I mean, especially when you like me, I went from, I used to pre-plan every detail of all of my travel. And now I've literally, when I look back, how crazy it is, I just book a flight, book a few <coughs> nights accommodation and then figure it out. 
I would never have thought to do that before. That would have been way too adventurous for me. So, um, you know, you you get to find out who you are. Um, and, and that's what's really important when you want to figure out what to do with the rest of your life. Fantastic. And we will, we will put the link to this TED Talk in the show notes as well. Great. Well, that's it, I think. Um, any last words, Heather? No, thank you so much for having me. I would just encourage everyone, if you want to travel full-time, if it's on your radar, do it. <laughs> Don't wait. Just Wonderful. Yes, I think this is a thing. You know, people sometimes forget to live, don't they? And then suddenly it's too late. So thank you so much for being on Most Memorable Journeys today. Heather Markle. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.